Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retainer and I am broadcasting from here in the Hamptons, a place I have lived for over 50 years. I've written 12 books about this place and I've seen it grow through the years from small fishing villages to what it is today, a summer paradise for New Yorkers, artists, writers, musicians, movie stars, we have it all. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with the Hamptons' powerful people, but I will also introduce you to residents who contributed to our growth through the years, and you may not even have heard about them. Today's guest is Hans von de Bovenkamp, who's, in my opinion, one of the great sculptors that I've ever seen. In fact, I, I arranged to have one of his works placed on a public spot in Sag Harbor. Uh, he works in a studio and uh, outdoors in Sagaponic. And I welcome you to the show, Hans. Tell me a little bit about your work. Some of them are 10 feet tall. They're stainless steel for the most part, or how do you put them together? Yeah, I use uh, stainless steel for large sculptures, some of which are 40 feet tall, placed in public places. And I work here in stainless steel and bronze, and I try to stay under 20 feet because that's the height of my studio. I see. How do they attach? They weld them together? These are, I, I will make a drawing of a sculpture, and then I will make the, enlarge it and make it into cardboard shapes. I see. And the cardboard we trace onto metal, and then I have assistants who cut the metal out and we bend it and then we put it together like a box. So it's basically the corners are welded, it's a hollow frame and six sided, you know, the four sides and on top and on bottom. Then these shapes are rearranged. If they're small, we do it on a table or on a floor and they can go tall, then we use cranes. You do them on contract and also just because you like doing it every day? Well, when I was younger, I tried to do commissions. So I entered competitions and I won several. And these are large sculptures and I would get paid up front. But uh, nowadays I just only make sculptures that um, I like and that I can manage. And I try to do more of a, you know, a series of sculptures, like a collection. And when you do a commission, that usually is site-specific. So it has a objectiveness about it. Um, it's either to celebrate something or to memorialize something. Then they become quite large. And they're still in my style, but they're usually to a creator to accommodate a site. What, uh, what is the most prominent site that you have done work for? I have done sculptures kind of all around the United States and some in Europe. I've been very blessed. I am currently proposing my two largest sculptures. One is for a memorial in Las Vegas. And so I've created a memorial garden in which there is one piece of mine, which is an arch. And that is called the Arch of Transformation. 
So when you're in front of the arch or portal, you are in your present state. When you go through the arch and you break the plane of the arch, on the other side, symbolically, it's a spirit space. Mm. Deals with your spirit, um, whatever you choose. And then the other project I'm just now starting on is for Saudi Arabia. And that's a sculpture. They have a 300 foot cutout in the hills and they want some kind of welcoming sculpture. So again, I've proposed in the portal mm -hmm. 300 feet. It is, you know, the size of uh, uh, in St. Louis, the arch, except yeah. this is about 300 feet wide and maybe will be about 75 feet tall. And I'm just starting on this. So it's quite exciting. And at the moment, I have an, a, a smaller show in Bridgehampton. It's called a drive-by show by my dealer, Louis Maisel. Lou owns a number of buildings, and in front of each building is one or two sculptures placed, and they are between six and ten feet tall. So they're very manageable. And people can drive by, or you walk down the main street of Bridgehampton, and you can see each sculpture. And that show will be up for one year. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. I've, I've seen many of them. In fact, I guess it was um, after Lou started, I think he had put one on uh, the lawn of the Sanford house, which was next door to uh, my office in Bridgehampton. Yes. Uh, by the way, we had a sculpture on the lawn for years uh, done by Jeffrey Parson, which was sort of in the shape of a potato. It was a giant boulder. <laughs> What is appropriate? It was you can sit on it. It was hollowed out, but I saw yours there, and uh, I thought they should be. You should have a piece in front of the child care center in Bridgehampton on the Turnpike. Yes, I have a piece there. Actually, it would actually um, elevate the whole sense of that place. In fact, they're now building a new seven thousand square foot building and your sculpture will, will remain there on that, that lawn. And right. I came to see you at that time and I was so, so happy to meet you and said we'll, we'll put it there and we, we have. And now we're also planning to expand with Lou's approval and which was I think given uh, yesterday and in, in the collaboration with the newspaper and Vicki Schnepps to put sculptures all around the Hamptons for a year. It's an interesting thing because uh, years ago, when I was my office was in Bridgehampton, I had bought a print shop in Southampton, and I wanted to promote the print shop in front of my my house. You could bring things in there, and we would take care of it from there in Bridgehampton. And I put out a, um, a I guess you call it a like a billboard sign. It's two sided, and it's in the shape of an upside down V. You know. Ah. And, does it on both sides. And within hours, this town of Southampton was by saying, you can't have that there. There was a woman running the uh, sign part of Southampton town who was called, she was a physician, called Dr. No. <laughs> and the law said you couldn't have something like that. And she was going to see to it. Nobody ever did. And that was the end of that. 
And that's when I decided that there would be a big boulder there, which she couldn't object to as far as I could see. And from there, the, the sculptures by Lou began to spring up your pieces because he so ad admires your work, as do I. Now they're in Watermill. And how many are there all together right now in, in the Hamptons? All of the Hamptons? Well, yeah. you're in Bridgehampton and Watermill and yeah. maybe a few other places. 15 to 20. Wow. There's some at, uh, private homes right on the ocean. And um, what is nice about the Children's Museum, by the way, is that they were not very noticeable. And a sculpture is a large enough sculpture, is a landmark. So when, let's say when you drive on a corporate road and they give you a number 12,411, it's very hard to remember, but if you say, no, if you drive there and you see this big red sculpture, that's <laughs> our building. Yes. So it is a perfect uh, landmark. And yeah. this was the case for the Children's Museum, and it has been very helpful to them to sort of people see the sculpture and say, oh, this must be the place. Yeah. And yeah. it's very wonderful to, you know, to accentuate architecture. Well, it's also, I think, uh, as art, as something to be appreciated, and not just as a marker. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that goes without saying. But uh, having the works uh, that you do around the Hamptons is, uh, is up very uplifting. Well, thank you. We're, 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 the drive-by situation is that there is a map online you can use, uh, which shows where the locations of all the sculptures are. So you can drive by and look at them and stop and get out of your car if you want during this then time. Then you can go to Lou Mazel's garden, where yeah. he has uh, several other large sculptures, really much larger, yeah, but more complicated to move. And then if people are more interested, then they can come here to my garden. I have uh, seven and a half acres with maybe 40 sculptures sitting around. Yep, yeah. What's the uh, largest sculpture you've ever had to move, and how did you do it? Well, you had said that some of them have been 30, 20 feet, right? Yeah, well, I have sculptures. I won a very big worldwide competition for Nebraska. Nebraska wanted to make a gallery along the road, which is 452 miles from east to west. And every hour, they would have a rest stop with a bathroom and something for people to get out of the car and run around. And I did a sculpture, which is called Roadway Confluence. It is 40 feet tall. Wow. And uh, the landscape in Nebraska is very flat, very much like the Netherlands. So the sculpture can be seen from the highway from miles away. Yes. <laughs> and... And the, I, I, they loaned me a car that had a CB in it. And I was talking to the truckers. And they would say, oh, my God, what is this? There must be some huge rabbit, you know, because it had two vertical elements. And uh, so I listened to the comments of the people. They didn't even know who I was. And it was kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, so they enjoyed driving because every hour they would see another sculpture, you know, of substantial size. I see. And this is uh, in 1976. Uh huh. That was the yeah hundred year celebration. 
Yes, the 200th anniversary of the United States. Yeah. And how many sculptors are there uh, along that drive? All by different... Uh, art different, different artists, about uh, eight or nine. How did you get it there? Did you make it out there or did you... Well, the sculpture was three sections. We left the 40 foot for structural reasons and we had it on huge flatbeds and they made an arrangement with the governor to come down for the installation. And every time the trailer came to a new state, he said, no, you cannot drive at night. Uh, you have to start tomorrow morning when it's light. We only want this for, you know, six or seven hours in the daytime. Mm -hmm. And then the governor called up every governor of each state and he said, look, you know, we're having this unveiling plant. Can we please get police escort huh. and drive this through your state? And they did. And we were able to install the sculpture with help from the town. They brought all their unusual equipment in and we were able to erect it on a um, 30 foot diameter concrete base that was seven foot deep. So that would prevent the sculpture from turnover because of the strong winds they yes, had. very high. Yes. Wow, that's something. How did you come, were you born in Holland? What was the occasion of your coming here for the first time? Well, uh, I was born in 1938, and it was the situation of Russia. Holland was afraid Russia might invade Holland. You know, yeah. Germany had done it in 1940, and they took Holland in one day, the Germans. Yeah. So we didn't have much resistance. So then at one point my father said, uh, let's go to Canada, and we can all have a, a new life. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'll go with you for one year to Canada. And after one year and having, I think, 10 jobs, uh, at, at the end, I had two eight-hour jobs to save enough money to go to the University of Michigan, which is in an arbor, not as far away from Sarnia, Port Huron, uh, Detroit. Sure. That's where, where I uh, worked. And uh, fascinating. I had 10 very fascinating jobs from being in, uh, working in the bank to being a dog walker. And then they say, what would you like to do? And they, yes. were, busy, they were busy with the church. And I said, well, I like to, I like to be a carpenter. And they said, well, go ahead and hang the, the, the doors of the church. And I started, I had no idea how to do this. I didn't even have a hammer and a saw. And the guy, the, the contractor said, well, you, you are not a carpenter. I said, well, I never claimed I was a carpenter. I would like to be a carpenter. <laughs> So they fired me, and I became the assistant to the schlepper. I see. Uh, he, he was the guy that cleaned up the site and would put all the rubble in the dumpsters. And uh, yeah. that was the start of my career in Canada. And then how did you come to make sculptures? And yeah, well, I went to the University of Michigan and was accepted on a probation. And I did the uh, University of Michigan, studied mostly architecture. And I did it in three years instead of four years. Mm -hmm. And I basically had no money. So I bought a welding equipment and I began to make lamps in the basement of the house that I was renting with mm -hmm. some other people. And uh, the lamps were frames. 
and I hired half a dozen Swedish women to work with me on these lamps. I would weld the frames and they would put raffia. Raffia is colored straw and we had it in different colors. Mm -hmm. And they would, with a bulb inside, they would cast beautiful shadows. And my designs were so light. Life magazine would do every year an article about the 20 best designs of the year, product designs. And I was one of them. And ah. all of a sudden, my lamp career took off. But it was more or less just a business. You know, I didn't have the passion after I've made a few hundred. We made a few thousand. Right. And then I, from when I graduated, I drove to New York in an old car and my few belongings. And I stayed with a friend and I opened a studio on the Lower East Side. It was an abandoned loft. Mm -hmm. And windows were out and I put up plastic. I got a potbelly stove and I, my friends next door gave me a long extension cord out of their window into my window. <laughs> And that was my setup. I see. And I got friendly with this famous designer from Tiffany's who did the windows, Gene Moore. Beautiful books are out about the windows of uh, Tiffany's. Mm -hmm. And he said, Hans, can you do something? I said, okay, I'll, I'll, let me think about this. And he said, well, you people are selling permanents in diamonds and, you know, et cetera, and gold. I said, I will make something that is impermanent, that, that will destroy itself in the window. Since I had no money, I just went around the street and I found metal shelving that you use for, you know, industrial closets, mm -hmm. green shelving. They're about maybe three feet, four feet by two feet. And I began to cut them up and bend them and put water in them and to fit the windows in Tiffany's. And they put their beautiful little gold diamonds and stones in and put maybe 20 lights in a little space. And my water, because this was just raw, thin material, began to rust. So in the process, it became brown soup, the water. Mm -hmm. And the jewelry from Tiffany became more and more beautiful as the yeah. background began to recede. I see. Then people asked me, well, can you make these things so they last? And I called around and they said, well, you should make them in copper and brass. So there was a whole new technique for me. I'd never worked in that before. And I began to make them and I ended up with 20 assistants. Oh. And we sold these founders all around the world. They were on the cover of Hammaker Schlemmer catalog of uh, George Jensen, mm. uh, American Express, sold many of them and all of a sudden it seems so easy to make money when you're doing well <laughs> and then i said well maybe i can afford sculpture so i set up a separate place for sculpture and of course that was impossible to sell especially with no reputation but i was able to build up let's say inventory because if a gallery contacts you, they don't want to see three pieces, they want to see 30. Sure. So they have something to sell. So I started to show around the United States and I would load up my car. One time I loaded up a school bus, which I bought, took the seats out. Wow. And with mattresses, I moved 50 fountains to Florida. 
mm-hmm. and dropped them off. And that was a, what was nice about this, it has a passenger license plate. So I didn't have to go on the highways. I could go on parkways and, and that was quite fun. So with the money I was making, I began to make sculpture. And again, the same thing. I would drive from here to Santa Fe for a show or, you know, to the West Coast or Michigan. I drove for days and nights just to bring the work. And, you know, now after having achieved uh, some success, now galleries and places I want to show pick up my work and pack it. And it's a different life. Yeah. And also at my age, um, it's, it's very physical and I've had a lot of broken parts in my body. <laughs> but somehow it was all fixable, you know, and I'm still walking around. So when did you come out east to the Hamptons? To- I came, I had a client, Edward Albee. I saw my work and he bought a piece. I said, well, I'll come and deliver it, you know, from upstate New York. And when I came to the Hamptons... In East Hampton, they have the pond at the end of the road. And you go left into the town, but I made a mistake. I went right. And I drove around. I said, my God, this is an incredible town. with these huge villas with lawns. Yes. I said, this looks like a very good place to market. Yes. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so I delivered a sculpture. And very slowly, I built up an appearance here. You know, I loaned my sculpture to everyone who wanted it, so to to have it visible. And then slowly, you know, I began to get shows around Europe, and mostly in America, and some in Europe. One museum in Europe, in Bratislava, that is, they bought an island, and they built a museum on the (laughs) island called the Danubiana, Möllenstein. Mr. Möllenstein was a Dutch philanthropist. Mm-hmm. And he bought 40 big sculptures for me. Wow. I thought I could retire for life, but I just bought more material and I built a studio and the money was gone. And so in a museum, I have about 18 pieces, very visible in Europe. It looks like two days ago I sold another sculpture, maybe from that. I'd never know where the connection is. I see. What would you say, this would be my last question, is there a theme connected to all of the different sculptures in terms of knowing that they're of your imprint and what your philosophy or your sense of it is? And you must enjoy this very much. Well, typically, if an artist is recognized, they say, oh, that looks like a Picasso, that looks like a Henry Moore, so you really develop a style. And I studied, uh, basically all my inspiration comes from nature and from mythology. In mythology, if you look around, there are many areas where they have stacked stones. When yeah. the uh, Indians walk through the forest, they would find an energy place and they would erect a stone or a pyramid or what have you. And these stones were called menhirs. M-E-N-H-I-R. And that meant not a stone that lies flat, but a stone that stands up. Very much like uh, in England, the Stonehenge. I see. So I began to to make pieces, not in stone, but in metal. Ah. And I was able, 
so I did this men here series for the last 10 years. I see. And what was nice to do it in metal, I could actually cantilever pieces, what you cannot sure. do with a stone, because I was welding it between top and bottom and held it in place. Yes. And so I could make, you know, the inspiration came from Stonehenge, but I could make things much more abstract and often related to nature and a lot of them to mythology. Wow. Yeah. I, I, for example, I just, uh, I have made a sculpture that was called Izanami and Izanaki. These were the two mythological gods that created Japan. So I made two eight-foot sculptures and called them Izanami and Izanaki. And I just recently sold them and I am asking who the client is. It must be a Japanese because he would know those mythological figures. <laughs> So uh, I like the connection to connect to the universe and the world and I see. Or to my heart. Yes. Are you excited when you finish a sculpture? Is it a joy to see uh, what you're thinking that has come to pass? Yeah. Well, everyone asked me that question. When I finish a sculpture, I look at it and say, oh, my God, you know, next time I've got to change this and that and <laughs> I see. Do, it, uh, do it so and so. But it is really about the process. When I look at my life, my life has been a journey. In the very beginning, with a tiny suitcase and an old car. Now the suitcase has gotten bigger, the car has gotten bigger. And I am still on the journey. But, you know, I have a wonderful place here. I feel very blessed. I have two assistants. One that you saw in the background is uh, Gerilyn Lewandowski, who's been with me for 20 years, yeah. who keeps my life in the office straight and is very helpful, especially at my age now, because my chip is full and I'm very forgetful. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, as we get older, we all know this. <laughs> and the other person is Kevin Miller. He works in my studio and... He knows how to make these sculptures better than I do at this point. I see. And so I work in cardboard and he translates them into metal. But uh, so my whole series is called Men Here series. I see. Thank you for coming to my podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, you are a hero because you have kept me involved in the doings in the East End here for many, many years. Oh, thanks so much. I'll come by. There's one artist looking at another artist. Thank you. I'll come visit you. I know where you are. Good. Bye-bye.